Jim Chosa. Jim Chosa. Okay. And Pastor, Pastor Mike. Would you, Pastor Mike, would you come up? He would like us to pray over him before we uh, turn him loose. He's a man that understands authority. <laughs> Father, we love you. We thank you. Lord, as we open up our hearts, Lord God, we thank you that you are faithful to speak into us and to release your word into us. We thank you for Ted. I thank you, Lord God, for the calling of God in his life. God, you've given him uh, natural abilities and, and gifts, and yet he rests upon you for the supernatural. Lord, I, I pray that you would release your anointing upon him today. I pray, God, the blessing of God upon everything that uh, pertains to, to him. Ted, we just bless you in Jesus' name. We just release uh, an increase of the awareness of the glory of God into your life. We just pray over uh, all, of, all of those who are related to you, family, uh, all the ministry, all the, all the work of your hands, it, that it would prosper and that it would be kept um, by the one who surrounds you with his protection. And we just bless you as a body of people. Stretch out your hands towards him. And just, uh, just for one moment, just, just begin to pray in the spirit towards him and just the rich overflow of the goodness of God. Thank you, Lord, that you just protect his heart and his mind, his spirit, Lord. We thank you. We just say, Ted, you're a man of God, chosen by God for this moment and for this hour. This is a Kairos moment, and we just bless you. And we receive what God has for us today in the mighty name of Jesus. And so, Ted, on behalf of the indigenous authority for this landscape, elevated through the blood of Christ with and magnified by heavenly authority, I open up this landscape to you. And according to the scriptures, I say to you, you are not a stranger any longer in this landscape. But the land will relate to you as one born in the land. And so, Ted, I say, welcome. Welcome to the indigenous land of Minnesota. And we say, enjoy the fullness of this land. And land, we say to you, and we open you to the word of the living God through this vessel of the Lord. We open up the sphere above the land. We open up the surface of the land. We open up the in part of the landscape to the word of God coming forth from your heart and your mouth as the oracle of God in this hour in Jesus' name. Lord, I welcome Ted as the state apostolic leader of this uh, state network of intercessors. I, I, I cover him with the authority that's in that office, and I say welcome, Ted, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Well, that feels good. I'm, I want to speak more sessions now, you know, get them to do that every time. 
Praise the Lord. I want to speak about uh, this morning about protocol. And I want to tell you, share with you some of the principles that the Lord has been teaching us and then try to share, you know, practical stories, applications about how we've been walking these out, how we've been learning from our mistakes. I think it's such a privilege to know people like Jim and Rick and Ed and, and Jay and and one of the biggest things I like to hear is about the mistakes they've made. Because I said, praise God, they screwed up big time. And now I can learn from them and I don't have to do the same thing. Hallelujah. Um, and so uh, protocol, just a simple definition that I want to put out there. Uh, very practical. Protocol is a right thing done a right way. And so often we do the right thing, but we do it a wrong way. And if you and probably we should add to that the right thing, a right thing done a right way at the right time. And if you if you you violate any one of those, it ends up being you know you might want to do a, a good thing, like Ed Savosa says. You know, so often we preach a good gospel the ba a, a wrong way, and it's like giving wonderful kisses with bad breath. Nobody wants any seconds. Um, <laughs> And so a very practical application of this, I recently had an intercessor, called a friend of ours, a um, friend of mine, someone I respect very much, a powerful intercessor, seasoned intercessor, who had organized a prayer uh, event. And in the context of that prayer event, she felt led to deal with the indigenous, you know, do repentance towards the indigenous people. And she was telling me some of her frustrations and sharing how another indigenous leader that she had approached is also a friend of mine and, and how he wouldn't participate and how you know she was frustrated and, and, and said you know it's just just he's what's up with him he's just so bitter and uh, you know I began to dig a little bit more and you know and she had talked with him and invited him to participate he'd been in her home for eight hours and said we talked for eight hours and, and, and he just just couldn't get past his bitterness and I encouraged her I you know she's a wonderful lady any mistake she might have made isn't anything I haven't done <laughs> but I thought you know I don't know that man as a bitter person I mean calling a native person bitter I mean yeah there many of them are you know and in fact what surprises me is not that they're bitter is that they're not bitter more you know, and, and you would be too if you saw it from their eyes. And as you begin to address these issues, one thing I, I mean, you know, you want to stick a, a, you're sticking a broomstick in a hornet's nest. The highest level of warfare and confusion at every level, macro and micro, just globally, is when we began to move towards these issues. Why? Because they're key and the devil knows how to defend, you know, his, his strongholds. And so you're, you're going to find a bitterness there. But I was thinking this friend of mine, I don't think he's bitter. So I poked around a little bit more and I asked him and, and he shared his heart and then, it, uh, I mean, I didn't ask him directly, but I just found out. And he, he said, you know, I, I felt I couldn't participate. I felt they went beyond their, their mandate of what they were doing and, and he basically shared how they were violating protocol and the natives that they had invited, they'd been given a divine mandate to do one thing and they wanted to do other things and the native people they had, they had invited were the wrong people and I asked another man who I respect very much, he says, yeah, I, I went to that prayer meeting and so-and-so didn't go and, and it, was, it was okay, we ended up leaving early and then on the way back, uh, my wife told me I needed to call this other guy up and repent because he had been right. <laughs> and um, 
And I began to think about it, and I think it's so sad. Here was this native leader, and not everyone has the gift of Ed Silvoso. You know, Ed Silvoso can just slap you around and you feel good about it afterwards. You know, we don't all have that gift of diplomacy. But because of the mindset that was stuck in, here was a man coming, giving of himself, went to meet with her, spent eight hours of his time. Offer, I mean, and that's an offering of a relationship. And he wasn't bitter, but he was trying to share a point and share another perspective. But all she could get out of it was that he was bitter. And I have the privilege, I mean, I was in a similar situation, but I've had the privilege of hanging out and getting to know Jay and spending the relationship. And it's out of walking out of these relationships that we've made these mistakes. We've violated protocol. In, I mean, for example, a lot of people just group all the natives together. So they'll go to a certain meeting, they're having the meeting, and now the native thing is all hip, you know. So they, they invite the, you know, the native person to come and give a blessing. Well, the native people of that land say, who's that guy? We don't know him. Who is he? I mean, and you think about it, it would be like, uh, you know, I mean, my wife's Portuguese. So it'd be like a Spanish in Portugal inviting you know, an American into the country. It's like, it doesn't quite work. They're not of that country, you know, but it's all the same to us. And if we do the right thing in a wrong way, we end up propagating the same spirit. You know, protocol is like, um, Jesus talked about this extensively. And in fact, lots of people, you know, I mean, not lots of people, but occasionally we get accused of, of Luke 10, prayer evangelism being just a program. It's not a program, it's protocol. The way Jesus spoke very clearly in those four steps, bless, fellowship, minister, heal the sick, and then proclaim that the kingdom of God has come, Jesus was outlining a protocol about how the gospel, a right thing, a good thing, is meant to be presented. And if you violate that protocol, you're going to see, you're going to end up doing a good thing in a wrong way. You know, and, and the parable of the, the good, of the sheep pen and the good shepherd, it says, I am the door. Whoever comes through the door, you know, is a good shepherd if they come through me. And, 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 and I'm a good shepherd because I'm willing to lay down my life for the sheep. The thief climbs over the wall. The one who climbs over the wall, you know he's a thief. He has no legitimate right to be there. And if he climbs over the wall, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's a picture of protocol. You need to come through the door, through the door of Jesus and walk through his protocol, you know, and, and, and if you come like, um, um, if you come into the land without asking, going through the doorway, without asking the proper protocol, it's like you're a thief. And the native people know that. I mean, uh, we, we talked about this. I learned a lot of this in Hawaii when uh, uh, Daniel Kikawa was coaching us and, and, and sharing, and, 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 he, and he helped us set up a protocol ceremony. And, and when you see the transformation in Hawaii, we don't, we don't focus much on the indigenous issue but because a lot of the spiritual warfare, this is meant to done, be done in secret and hidden, you know. But then it comes out in, 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 in bits and pieces. But what you see is the tip of the iceberg, and there's this whole deep, a lot of groundwork, a lot of intercession that we need to go through. But he says the indigenous people, they know, you know, you, if you didn't ask permission, you have no right to be there. No, they're just there. But if you do go through this protocol, it's this deep covenant that's formed. And, and uh, once uh, you know, a native person invites you into the land, 
the, the depth, they, they hold that very responsible. I'm responsible for you the way a, a, a father's responsible for their child. If my kid goes running out and on his bike and runs into the neighbor's a car and messes it up, you know, the kid might get a spanking, but I'm responsible to repair that car. And I can't say, oh, that was not my responsibility. No, it's my responsibility and I better own it. So speaking about protocol, now I want to go now and talk about um, uh, the Babylonian spirit and bring out some, um, kind of build the, the biblical and, and uh, theological theory foundation to then explain some of the things that are happening and some of the things that have been keys for breakthroughs we've seen in California and um, uh, really around the world, in Argentina as well. So I want you to go to Genesis 9 and I want to talk about Noah here. And this is, this, uh, you know, it's the Tower of Babel was probably the first manifestation, um, well, uh, one of the first manifestations of the, 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 the Babylonian spirit and the Babylonian empire, you know, there's, that, that is, is enduring to this day. And I want to show you the, some of the origins of that. Now, you, you realize, we go back to, to, to Adam and, and understand the fall of Adam, but also there was a fall of Noah. You have to realize that Noah was God's was one of God's first uh, archetypes of Christ. He was one of the, the 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 first types of Christ. And with the Noah and with the flood was one was a redemptive move. move. Uh, man fell and chaos was all over and God said okay I'm going to redeem the earth and and he looked and he found uh, one righteous man and his family. But out of those eight that were rescued through the ark, did you realize all of those eight were saved? They were born again. They had a clean slate. And God wiped out all the iniquity. And it wasn't, um, and, and, and God had a plan to say, okay, we're going to rebuild society and we're going to root out that iniquity and we're going to start over. So in that sense, Noah was a type of Christ, you know, a type of, a foreshadow of, um, and, 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 and Noah and his family were the first type of, of Israel, in a sense, of a nation fallen out, called out. And in fact, I had a professor in, in college, and um, I went to the Master's College, if you've heard of John MacArthur, it's a very solid Bible school. Um, if you're from the charismatic side, you tend to think of it as more crunchy, but it's a, a wonderful gift for teaching the Word. And I had a, a professor there that, that, that had incredible insights into all of this. He was definitely ahead of his time and outside of the box. But all of the nations that we see today were founded by eight people. Noah and his three sons and their four wives. All of the nations, if you take the Bible literally, and I do, founded out of those eight people that came out of the ark and then founded the nations. This didn't just happen because this was very systematic. God had a clear vision of what he called out to. And in fact, um, the, 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 after, after the coming out of the ark was like the Gentile Pentecost, where God was founding the nations. What he instituted with Noah is where he instituted the institution of government before 
government, you know, it was kind of just, just everyone was on equal terms and it was total chaos. So part of the redemptive move was God instituted government. So in this sense, Noah and, his, and these eight people were a type of the, of the apostolic leaders. And, and they were endowed with an, a charisma, with an anointing, with an empowerment from God to, to found the nations. In a similar way that Moses was given the anointing of God and the power of God to found the Israelite nation later. Now, um, and in fact, you could hypothesize, and I'm going to show you how Noah's family fell. The same way that Adam was created in perfection and then he fell, Noah came out of the ark and they had a clean slate. Sin had been wiped out. Now, the, the curses over the land, I mean, we can debate as to whether, obviously, the principalities weren't dealt with yet, but these people had a clean slate. They were starting all over. They could build anew. A, a but then you, you see that in the same way Adam fell, from grace, Noah and his family fell. And I want to show you how that happens there. But if Noah and his family hadn't fallen, there really would have been no purpose, no reason for Israel. Israel came because all of the nations fell, and so God needed to take another redemptive move. And so the calling up of Israel, from the beginning, they were called not just to be one people that were separated out, they were called to be the priests to all of the nations, right? They were to model it and bring them back, bring them back to the garden. But in the step, they were also bringing them back to the order that God had initiated and desired and had designed out of Noah and his family coming out. So when we realize when we're talking about a people with a covenant of God, Israel is not the first people with the covenant of God. Israel is the prototype of all people. When all of the nations retrace their roots back to these eight people, and these eight people came out of the, the ark with a mandate to form nations, the same way Abraham had a mandate to form nations, the same way Moses had a mandate to form nations, all of them had this pure, undefiled covenant with God, each of the eight, I believe, representing a different aspect and divine part of his nature and their diversity. One God, very diverse in his manifestations. They came out and they all had a covenant with God and in the same way we can trace Israel, and we see how they fell from their covenant, if you look back at the story, and many, I mean, and, and it's totally different because the story has been lost and you have to research, and, and like J.R.R. Token said, we have forgotten what should never be forgotten. But if you trace back the story of each nation, all of them go back to a place where they had a covenant with God and they have fallen from that covenant. And so when God instituted Israel, it was for them to manifest the, a nation under covenant with God the way it was meant to be and then present that to the rest of the nations. So some interesting points here that um, an intercessor pointed out to me. It's amazing these things these intercessors get when they pray. And we're talking about protocol, and, and, and I want you to change the picture. The picture we've had, I mean, so often the picture we've had of the garden is these two little people sitting in this tiny little garden. It's so pastoral. No, I mean, this was, the garden was the first New Jerusalem. God had from the beginning designed uh, uh, I mean, we often think that society came as an afterthought, and oh, God just wanted to have Adam and Eve forever to his own, you know, he just wanted a small little two children was enough for him, you know. <laughs> and then afterwards, oh, 
they fail, now we gotta have more, you know? And that's, that's how we feel we are, we're an afterthought. No, God instituted marriage and procreation before the fall, okay? And he said, be fruitful and multiply. God envisioned the new kingdom from the beginning. And, and the garden as the first new Jerusalem was meant to be the center of this hub and this incredible empire that God or kingdom that God had envisioned, but then the fall came. You know, we've got to get away from this secular, you know, watered down, tiny little pastoral picture that we have of the garden. In the same way, we've got to totally change our view of the ark. I mean, most of this is, you know, Noah, this old man about to die, and, and, and they come out and it's all desolate and destitute. No, Noah was the greatest emperor who had greater authority that has ever existed. His family was the greatest uh, a dynasty that, that was ever around. The, the, the God's plan for the nation, he had it very clear, and he spoke with Noah and, 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 and his sons. I believe they had intense conversations as they were planning of how to rebuild society and rebuild the nations after the flood. And so, um, in this sense... Coming out of the ark and Noah and his family, they understood who they were. And you have to think of this in a royal context, okay? So what happened there was very important. And going in and out of the ark, I want to point out some issues of protocol. In chapter 9, this is where God is giving him the instructions, sharing with him you know, the, 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 the new orders and, and telling him what he's going to do. And I've established my covenant with you, verse 8. Um, and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals. Oh, wait, I want to go back to chapter 7. That's where he's speaking about the covenant. When God is giving him these orders, in Genesis 6, verse 18, it says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons, and your wife, and your son's wife, wives. Now, I want to bring out this one point. When God is telling Noah to go into the ark, he's, he, he, there's a specific detail here. He says, I want you to go in, you and your sons. And then after you come you see your wife and your wife's sons. Okay, this represents men above women. The first result of the fall in the social terms. Man fell from God and then women was subjected to man. The old order. So you're coming in under the new order. But now, watch this. Then he, and it says in 7 verse 5, And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. So he followed all of those, these instructions, including that one that I highlighted. And now, and then verse 7, And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. So I'm proposing to you that this was not, is not written here just by accident, but there's an importance in the order, and this order symbolizes the order of man and woman, man over woman, after the fall, going into the ark, going to the old order. And now listen to this. And then it repeats it again. Verse 13, On that very day Noah and his sons, Shem, Hem, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of the three sons, entered the ark. Now when they're in the ark... God gives him another instruction when coming out. Go to chapter 8, verse 15. And God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, 
you and your wife and your sons and their wives. And then bring out the animals. Okay. Why would he bring this point up? And now it's clearly changed. He says, you go in, you and your sons, and then your wife and your son's wives, but now when you come out, you come out with your wife by your side, and then your sons come out with their wives by their sides. See, God was reversing the fall that had happened in the garden. He's saying, now, out of this ark, out of this new covenant, I am restoring woman to the place where she should be, right next, side by side with man. That's why you've already missed your chance to, order, to purchase the Women God's Secret Weapon book in the back table, uh, so you'll have to order it from us. Okay, but you all need to read that. But what happens? Now listen this. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. Ooh, and you notice... You're not going to find that passage that says in 7 verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. It's not repeated. Noah did not do all that the Lord commanded him. What happened? Noah, for whatever reason, did not obey God. And when he came out, his sons were still in the boys' club, and his women were still in the place of subservience after the fall. Oh, that's not important now, is that? No big deal. Really? Now go on to chapter 9, and we've all, I, you should be more familiar with this. Beginning in verse 18, where it talks about the sons of Noah. Uh, and then, then verse 20. It says, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their face was turned the other way so that they could not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke up from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. And then he goes on and he blesses uh, bless the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. Folks, this is the fall of the house of Noah. It happened right here. Canaan was the father of the tribes that were in uh, the anti-Israel. The tribes, the, the Amalekites, the, the, the Girgashites, where all this human sacrifice was originated, where the Baal worship, where, where Jezebel came from, the tribes that, that were then so perverse. I mean, they were perverse when God called uh, uh, Abraham, Isaac, uh, called Jacob out of... Um, called Israel, out of, uh, out of the, the promised land into Egypt and said, they're already so perverse I should wipe them out, but I am so gracious I'm going to give them even 400 more years. This was a people where it originated right here from Noah's curse. Now, I never understood this. Noah wakes up, and clearly something is happening here. Ham violated Adam, uh, Noah in some way. And we, we, it doesn't give the details. What I think happened is I think Noah got depressed because he went from this great vision, this incredible high, he came out and the earth was not manifesting it yet. There was just a lot of mud around. 
And the work was very, very hard. And I think he got depressed. So what did he do? He built a vineyard, got some wine, and self-medicated himself. But the whole point is that Ham would have never been able to walk in and see his son's nakedness. And what I think happened with Ham is Ham went in and he saw his, son, his father in his weakness and he just reacted against it and he came out and says, Noah's a fraud. And reacted against it because of this letdown of this, you know, this great image he had of Noah. The whole key is... Ham was where Noah's wife should have been. When Noah gets depressed, who is it that ministers to him? It's his wife that either makes him feel better or slaps him around a little and says, stop feeling depressed. And in either case, if he's drunk and he's naked, who's supposed to see him? His wife is there. And when Ham comes to the tent gate, there's his wife saying, I'm sorry, you cannot come in here at this moment. Ham was set up for the failure. Because Noah failed to obey the Lord. He violated protocol. And so it begins with this violation of protocol. Ham, uh, Noah sets himself up for failure. When he falls, Ham comes in and broadcasts that fall all over and says, look at this guy, he's horrible. Let's not follow him anymore. Follow me instead. And the house of Noah falls. And that's why what Shem and Japheth did was so important. What did they do? They walked in backwards. Love covers a multitude of sins. They had a garment and they said, Noah's weak, but it doesn't matter. It's not our place to judge. It's our place to cover. They walk in backwards and they cover him with a blanket. And they come up and they're a buffer to him. But right there, you see the divide of the house of Noah, and it's Ham's son, Nimrod, who, who builds Babel, who is the first Antichrist figure, who is, uh, uh, you know, probably the, 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 the human figure who is the origin of Baal. There's spiritual issues there. But this is where the Tower of Babel was originated because of a violation of protocol. Okay. Tracking with me so far? Okay, so um, and the issue. Oh, 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 the other point I wanted to bring out here. Why does Noah wake up and Ham has sinned against him, and he wakes up and he curses Canaan? That never made sense to me. Now, first of all, I don't believe this curse is is so much Noah just going on a cursing tirade. I believe it's Noah speaking prophetically and pronouncing the judgment of God. Then I understood it. Canaan was the youngest son of Ham. And what he was saying is this is what the Lord says. Ham, you treat your father this way. Your sons are going to treat you that way. As you sow, so shall you reap. I will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. See, there's a divide there. If we make judgments against our fathers, if we treat our fathers badly, if we treat them judgmentally, if we make bitter root judgments against them, you know what? You are going to be, if, you say, if you've said in a moment of anger and weakness, I'm never going to be like the old man. You know what? You're going to be just like the old man unless you deal with that, come before the Lord. You know, one of the silliest statements the world has is time heals all wounds. Time doesn't heal anything. The blood of Christ heals all wounds. And how many people have come up to 
you know, a point, you know, they get a little older, they start to have a family, and they say, I'm just like the old man, what I was never going to be. See, it's happening right here. Ham made a judgment of his father, and that's the way his sons were going to treat him. Okay. So now let's go to Malachi 4, 5, and 6. And actually, you should read the entire book of Malachi. I've just uh, been amazed. I'm actually amazed at how well written the Bible is if we actually read it. But we don't bother to read it. We just, you know, hack it up. And if we figure if we put a verse in reference to it, it's all right to take stuff out of context. Um, you know, we rarely read the whole book. Um, Malachi is very well written. And, and you know, we, we call it a minor prophet. It's, it's, it's anything but minor. It's extremely important. And... Malachi was the last revelation that God gave for, for, for 400 years. But we think, oh, 400 years. I mean, no. This was just a coffee break for the Holy Spirit. This was the revelation where he was summing up everything he had spoken to mankind up to that point and was setting the stage for John the Baptist and for Jesus. In the same way Jesus never had time because he got martyred, you know, he got murdered or killed at an early age, Jesus didn't write any scriptures. So it was his followers who led after him. And, and John the Baptist and Jesus represent the union of the old and the new, okay? These two come together. Well, the same way John the Baptist never had time to write anything, because when he went to prison and was about to write his memoirs, they chopped his head off. Um, so God knew that and foresaw it, so he had Malachi write the gospel of John the Baptist in the same way that Jesus' disciples wrote the gospels of Jesus. Malachi is so important, but we divide up the scriptures. I mean, Ed's on a one-man crusade against man-made additions to the scriptures. We call them chapter and verse and references. But they're man-made additions. And then we put in these, you know, these, these, uh, these chapter headers that are not inspired. I've heard people preach, you know, and says, this it, this it is in italics. It's so important that the Holy Spirit put it in italics. And if you read the footnote, it says the words in italics were added by the translators because they're not in the original text. You know? <laughs> so some of the worst dividers... For us to really understand the revelation of God, or what I call the paper curtain. I have a friend of mine, and I haven't had the guts to do it yet, who, who leads audience and says, let's circumcise our Bibles. <laughs> Does your Bible mean take out the Gentile foreskin? <laughs> the paper that says the Old and the New Testament. Folks, it's one book. It's one book. And I had always, in my teaching, you know, these were minor prophets, supposedly minor because they wrote little, but we thought minor because they were unimportant and we didn't understand them. You know, and we studied very little of that. And, 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 and you know, we think we begin with the Gospels. Folks, it's one revelation. So Malachi, the whole book, is speaking about the revelation that Israel needs to hear to prepare to receive the Messiah. And it's... And, it, 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 and it's summarized there. I mean, he, I won't go through the whole book, but it's summarized there. He, he, he begins the book with his premise. He develops it throughout. I mean, those sins that he lists there are so important because those were the sins, the core sins that Israel needed to repent of and to deal with so they could receive the Messiah. That is so relevant to us because they're what we need to do to receive the ministry of the Messiah right now. But I won't go into that. I just want to bring this one point up. He summarizes it here. Verse 5, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah. 
before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. What he's saying is, I will turn the, a day of visitation is coming. I will send the prophet Elijah. Who was that? It would have been John the Baptist. It was John the Baptist. Israel didn't receive him, but he was. He was the fulfillment of this. Before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, what's the Lord saying? He's saying, I'm showing up with all my glory. I'm sorry, I can't compromise who I am. I am who I am. If I show up, if you're prepared for me, it is going to be the glorious day of the Lord. But if you're not prepared for me, it is going to be a day of dread. And my presence will cause all the iniquity within you to manifest, to come to the surface, and you will destroy yourselves. So you need to be healed. You need to be uh, reconciled. And if you're prepared for me, my advent will be glorious. But if you're unprepared for me, it will destroy you. That's what he's saying. So how do you do that? He's saying, let me summarize it all and deal with the key root issue. I will turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. Oh, folks, do you realize the power of this? Circumcise your Bibles. Maybe one of these days I'll have the guts to rip that page out. I only want to be so controversial. <laughs> no more. Um, in the beginning, God. The beginning of the revelation of God. And this theme is throughout. I, the Father, am creating family. I made man in my own image. Oh, it was Jim Chosa's message. I mean, it just opened up a whole panorama before. When Adam looked up, the first thing he saw was God, and he saw his eyes. And God imparted his essence into man. And I know, man, you know, I get excited about a lot of things. But there's a love inside of me when I first saw, I mean, you understand God in a whole other way when you have a child. You know, when you look at them, you know, I've had three children and then I just had a fourth. You know, did I run out of love for my fourth child? Did I like, oh man, I used up three quarters of it. I only got 25% for you left. No, I don't have to manufacture it up. So no, the three children just built my capacity and now it's even bubbling over more. I think I'm going to explode. God could not look at the rest of creation the same way He looked at man because man was His son. He wanted a family. And then the family got lost. And so now He's summaring up the revelation and saying, I will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. If you take out the, the, the white iron curtain, the very next passage that it says is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's saying, I'm going to turn the hearts of the fathers. I am the father. I am turning my heart to you, my children. And this is how I am doing it. I'm sending my son. And this is who he is. He's the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And then it goes all the way back, the son of David, 
Right here, it, goes, it lists it from Abraham on back, but if you go to Luke, it goes back the other way, and it says he's the son of so-and-so, the, the, the son of so it was supposed, the son of Jesse, the son of, the son of David, blah, 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 the son of Judah, the son of, of, uh, of, of Israel, the son of uh, Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of uh, uh, Terah, right? Blah, 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 blah. The son of, of Seth, the son of Adam, without missing a beat, the son of God. Wow. Do you realize that? We trace our origin back to God. The same way that you look at my kids and you, you know, who are you? Oh, okay, yeah, you, yeah, you're, you're, you're Ted's. Oh, I see it, and I see your mother too. And you identify them from their father. That's how we identify ourselves. Adam, the son of God. And so God is turning his hearts towards us. And you see, what I want to point, bring out here is that one, this is setting up the ministry of Jesus. See, and, I, and when I began, and the Lord began to speak to me about this, I had a whole new revelation of what happened in the fall in the garden. Do you know what the central issue was? I had always thought, okay, it's man falling from God. No, 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 it's not man falling from God. That gives no definition. What's God and what's man? That means nothing. Then I thought, okay, the key issue was man and woman and the way Adam kind of you know, uh, you let, let played with sin by allowing his wife to get out there and, and talk to the serpent. But it says he was there. You know, so he's kind of overhearing and listening and just kind of you know, manipulating and wanting to flirt with it but cover his tracks. You know? And I thought that was the core issue. And the Lord says, no, 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 all of those are secondary. The core issue is a son who rejected his father. And the broken heart of God. His love. And the rest of this book is this love story. I mean, think of the prodigal son. The prodigal son isn't just a powerful parable. It's a summary of the story of the gospel, of the story of the whole Bible. This father, this son who rejected his father, and this father who's been passionately loving his son and seeking after him and wanting him to come back and making one move and another and another, and how far will he go? How far will he go? How far will he go? And finally, he did it all. I mean, just think of God. Could not stand to be separated from us so much that he would risk it all and make the ultimate gamble to send his Son, down, Jesus Christ, the one that he still had fellowship with, to send it down and say, we've got to go for this. We've got to go to the end. That's the story of the gospel. That's what Jesus came to do, to reconcile us back to the Father. And now I'm turning my heart to you. But the other thing I want to give you right here is here you have a prophecy that gives an overview of where we as the church in the church age has fallen. The same way Adam and his house fell. The same way Noah and his house fell. And God needed to make another redemptive move. The same way that he made a redemptive move for Israel. But Israel never received the offer that he made to him. They sent Moses up alone. And when he came down, they said, cover it with the veil. Because we don't want that glory. We don't want our father. It's too glorious for us. We prefer to stay in our, in our garbage. And they rejected that. And then you can see and follow and see the house of Israel fell 
And God needed to make another redemptive move. In the same way, the church has fallen. The difference is, is that now is the culmination of all things. And now God is going to go back and is going to rise up the church, His people. And it's going to go back and He's going to restore Israel. And He's going to go back and He's going to restore all the nations of the world. And He's going to bring the restoration of all things back together. But we, just like Adam, just like Noah, just like Israel, we as a church have fallen. And we need to understand the fall of the church for us to go back and not repeat those same, uh, uh, those same mistakes. But right here, you have the overview, a prophecy that sets in big pictures, in broad strokes, the church age. What happened? See, the way I understood this, and I'll get to talking story now. Now, why don't I just park it here, and then I'll come back. Now I want you to go to Daniel, and I want to show you another place where the Babylonian spirit that we're combating, the spirit we need to overcome, was laid out and was identified and was prophesied. And this is right at the beginning of Daniel. And the book of Daniel is a manual on spiritual warfare of how to defeat the Babylonian spirit. But I don't have time to go into that. So, uh, This is the dream. We all know about that. And, you know, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. No, he forgets it. Nobody can interpret it. So Jesus says, uh, so, so Daniel says, I can interpret it. And then he, the Lord gives him a dream. He gets the dream and he gives the interpretation. So here's the dream. Uh, verse 31. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue at its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. What's he talking about? He's describing the Babylonian spirit. Many kingdoms, various manifestations, but the same system. One great, glorious, antichrist system. The Babylonian spirit. And he's saying this is how it stands. But there's coming a confrontation where a rock is going to hit it, and that's going to be destroyed and forgotten and washed away, and the rock will endure forever. What's he talking about? He's talking about... The ministry of Christ, the church that's going to confront the Babylonian spirit that's going to destroy it and establish the new heavens and the new earth, the restoration of all things. Right? I mean, I, I mean that's an ortho, I mean, that's not a charismatic, I mean, that's, everybody says that, right? So far, it's, 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 we're on safe ground. So then Daniel goes on and interprets this, and he says, he says that very thing. There's, there's uh, four kingdoms, right? And the first one is you, you're the head, you're gold, and then there's silver, and then there's bronze, and then there's iron, and then there's iron and clay. How many was that? Five. How come Daniel only says four? Because the iron, and then the iron and clay, he sees as one. Interesting. Um, but in either case, the fact is, is it's one system. Different empires, but one system. He's saying another, another, uh, another kingdom sets up, but the system is the same. Now there's some points I want you to bring up. I want to bring up. 
Okay, after you, this is verse 39, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw, the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it. Even as you saw iron mixed with clay, as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will become partly strong and partly brittle, just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay. So the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to other people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold uh, to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is too, and the interpretation is trustworthy. What I had been taught, I grew up in a dispensational, um, uh, you know, uh, conservative, evangelical, dispensational um, context. Um, and so we can all tease and, and make fun of the dispensationalists, but they also had a lot of insights. Um, um, but anyways, the, the, the interpretation I had been taught of this was, you know, um, Persia and all the different kingdoms, and then bronze was Greece, and then iron was Rome. And then the iron and clay represented the new Roman Empire that was to come at the end of the ages. There was going to be a revival of the Roman Empire, and that we today were living in this interim period that wasn't really spoken of about there, but was this insertion of the church age. That's the interpretation I had. Now I've arrived at a different interpretation, but rather than just telling you, I want to tell you the story of how I got there so that you will really understand the heart of the issue, okay? We're in California, we're praying, we're, we're, we're and, 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 you know, we'd had experience with Jay Swallow, I'd gotten to know him, and I think this was when we came back from Bemidji, I don't remember exactly. The Lord told me to address, it was time to address the native issues. And as we began to address the native issues and I began to study the history of California, um, one, I just had a tremendous education in what the victim spirit really looks like. When you get to it face to face, it's something very, very hurtful. And so often we want to have these lovely little reconciliations on our terms, in our church, at our wonderful charismatic meeting and say, who's, of native? who's a native here? Well, there's no natives. Okay. And then we start going down in quantity of blood. We finally get, you know, one quarter or one eighth. Okay, good enough. Stand up. We're sorry. We repent. We weep. You know, they're touched. They're blessed. I'm not mocking that. That's a good starting point. But folks, that's only a starting point. All that is is a very sanitized training. We're going to have to get out there and look the monster in the face and go the distance, going beyond reconciliation to restitution. There's something very deep we've got to go on. And when we get outside of the safe containment of the wall, it's no longer just a fun little charismatic issue that brings down the presence of the Lord. It's the cross of Jesus Christ which is something you have to bear. And so I began to learn that, and we learned that by mistakes. And I still have a lot to learn. But anyways, I began to study the history of California, and, uh, and I was just shocked. I, was just, I mean, I understood that America was an essentially denial of our history, you know, because history books are written by the conquerors. You know, and we view Andrew Jackson as this great American hero, 
To the native people, you know, he's, he's a figure like Hitler. He's a monster. And it's documented in Hitler's, di uh, uh, Hitler's diaries that his inspiration for the Jewish concentration camps was the American reservation system for his final solution. And I knew we were in denial, but I never knew how much denial California was in. I learned that the state with the highest per capita of native people is not Oklahoma, it's California. Why? Because we kept pushing them west. Now most of them are not indigenous people Most of, to California. Most of them are from other places that then came to California and um, are either now living on the reservations or many, most of them are just you know, urban natives. Um, but the highest per capita is in California. I didn't know that. You know, I used to think of the Mission Trail. I used to, th you know, say, you know, we want to honor the Catholics. It's important. But I would say, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. It was good with bad. Well, I mean, you can call anything a mixed bag. But the native people wouldn't call it a mixed bag. To the native people, it was nothing more or less than a holocaust. Cindy Jacobs was recently in Salinas in California, and she was prophesying, and the Lord told her, you have to deal with slavery. She goes, what? No, I'm off, man. There's no slavery here. You didn't have slaves in California. You know, the slaves were in the South. The Lord said, no, slavery. She said, the Lord told me slavery. Is slavery here? And we all said, yes, the native people. The missions were slavery. And slavery exists today, but that's a whole other issue. The whole global slave trade has reemerged. It's illegal, but it's, 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 it's prospering abundantly. And it's happening today in California in Minnesota. But that's a different story. So I began to, to research this and understand this. And one of the questions I asked, I said, Lord, how come we've never seen the reconciliation take place with the, native, with the, indigenous, with the Hispanic people? And it didn't make sense because Ed's being, you know, Latino, Argentine, and um, we had good friends with a lot of Hispanic pastors. We would bring Juan Zuccarelli, Omar Olier. I mean, you can't get more anointed than that. They would preach powerful messages, and, and it would be a wonderful time. But we never really break through to a transformation movement. And the Lord began to show me. He says, your reconciliation hasn't, taken hasn't hooked because the protocol is wrong. The foundation is wrong. And I said, oh, you're right. We're repenting to the Hispanic people as the dominant people who should have been nicer to them when they came across the border. And the Lord says, no, it's not that at all. They're the first people who came here, for good or for bad. They came, in other words, they stole the land first, and you stole it from them. You need to stop repenting to them as fathers to children, and you need to honor them as children to the fathers and say, for good or for bad, I, by my divine purpose, brought them here with the gospel first, and you need to honor them. And, you know, Ed talks about levels of partnership for reconciliation. The first is participation. Praise God, you know, we don't have an all-white meeting. We've even brought some color faces in. It's a good step. The next step is partnership. And this is way beyond this. We're there in the leadership, and we're building it together. And it's not a white thing that they're coming to. But there's a third level we've got to go beyond that, and that's leadership where the partnership is so deep that it's really not an issue of who's leading. And there's many, many, many contexts where they lead and we come to their event. Okay? And that's where we want to get to where we want to be. And that's, it's interesting, that's what's happening in, in, in Salinas. But we were in a prayer meeting, you know, one of these meetings, and we began to pray over the Hispanic. There's a Hispanic pastor there, my friend Manuel Dorado. And... Um, 
And, and I felt the Lord say, Re release this word. So I just knelt down, took my shoes off, and said, Manuel, this is what the Lord told me. And I want to honor you as a spiritual father, not repent to you as a spiritual son. And, as a, and I tell you, we could feel something shift. Well, it's interesting in Salinas, one of the reasons Salinas is taking off is because you, know, you had two pastors groups. You had the white pastors group, and you had the Hispanic pastors group. And the whites started first, and, and they were praying together. And the Hispanic guys, you know, not all of them speak, speak English, you know, and they feel better together. You know, and so they started their own group, and Salinas is 70% Hispanic. Well, you know, both of them kind of started to peter out, but this one petered out first, and eventually everyone got bored of coffee and donuts, started, stopped showing up, and they dismantled. And this group was really at a place where they needed a vision, and that's when the Lord connected us with them, and the Lord spoke about Salinas, and they came together. And a few, just a couple of the, the white pastors who really wanted fellowship because they were dry, they said, will you guys at least, you know, help us a little, you know, translate it so we can show up at your meetings? They say, oh, we'd love to have you show up. So what's happened is that now the Hispanic pastors group has grown, and now the transformation is happening. All the pastors are now, I mean, there's favor. They're not all coming, but they're all favorable and beginning to come and in relationship. It, that's the group that's become the pastors group for, uh, for the city. And now it's, they're not a Hispanic group. They're just a group, and they're bilingual. But now it's Manuel Dorado, the pastor, a bilingual pastor, but he's pastoring a Hispanic-speaking church that sometimes has translation, okay? It's not even a bilingual church fully yet. He's the one who's leading the pastors in the city. Folks, I don't know of any other place where that's happening around, uh, at least in my sphere of influence. And we couldn't have orchestrated that with, you know, all these prayer meetings. It just happened sovereignly because of protocol. And so then the Lord told us Catholics are key to California. So I began to pray, I began to research, I began to find out fascinating things about Hinnipera Sarah. How many of you have heard of Hinnipera Sarah? Hinnipera Sarah is the George Washington of California. Well, see, look at how ignorant we are of history. This guy founded California. California is not an insignificant state in the Union. He founded it. I mean, he's like George Washington. He was, he was this incredible figure. He walked further than... Um, uh, probably um, Lewis and Clark or uh, that other guy, Marco Polo. He walked to all the missions, and since he was a Franciscan, he would never be driven anywhere. He was actually crippled at a young age, but he still walked in incredible endurance. And, that and I began to just learn all these things that I don't have time to speak about now. But the Lord was showing me that, that the Catholics are key because the gospel first came in the Spanish language by the Catholic Church, and you need to address those issues. And then... Uh, California was founded this way, um, San Diego, this was in um, the early 1700s. It had been touched on before, but there was no colony there. And then I think um, uh, just before 1700, San Diego was the first mission. It was founded by the Franciscans. And then it came up and uh, Carmel, uh, Monterey was the second mission established. Mo Salinas is in Monterey County. You see how the Lord is just, all these things are strategic pointing back you know, to the Lord going to the root. And then it was moved to Carmel shortly after that, within a few months. And then Carmel became the base, um, and all, and, and, and Hinnipera Sarah uh, founded several other missions, I think seven or so other missions out of that. 
and then all the missions were founded. So Monterey was the first capital, and Carmel was the first spiritual capital of, uh, of California. So the Lord led us to go back to Carmel and, to, to, and to, to repent there. But as I began to study this, a friend of mine who's, who's a born-again uh, Catholic, but he's not a charismatic Catholic. He's, he's, he's a faithful Catholic, so kind of like Mel Gibson. So, you know, I don't know. You can decide how far he still needs to go, but uh, he's my good friend, and, and the Lord will judge him, okay? But I love him, and, 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 and I can see, I know he knows Jesus, okay? So he sent me this paper, and it, 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 it was kind of a side. It wasn't what I was researching, but it was basically a position paper of, anti, of the anti-Semitic issues of the Catholic Church against Israel. Now, that, that sentiment now is not mainstream in the Catholic Church. It's a small stream. But we, I mean, like the Catholic Church, we're so ignorant of it. You know, we think the Catholic Church. No, it's as diverse or more diverse than all of Protestantism. There's evangelical streams, there's charismatic streams. They have the Hank Hanegraaff in Catholicism, you know. They have these all internal battles inside. We, we, we just no, don't understand that. So anyways, this is a small stream now, but at one time it was the predominant sentiment in the church. Okay, you go back to the Inquisition and all that. And as I was reading that, they were talking about, you know, why they have a beef with Israel. And basically, the summary of the argument is that Israel has no longer any legitimacy, any spiritual legitimacy to exist as an entity. And I said, wow. I never saw it from their perspective before, and I said, wow. They feel the same way about the Jews as we feel about the Catholic Church. <laughs> I say, we, they have no legitimacy. The Pope's the Antichrist. You know, they have no legitimacy to exist. And then the Lord began to speak to me so powerfully and show me, you need to, not, you need to honor them as your spiritual fathers. And he showed me this picture. You have three generations, the Jews, because Christianity was first a Jewish movement. And going back to Daniel, I want to wrap this all together. And going back to Malachi. Malachi says, I will turn the hearts of the son, fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. What happened? Israel missed the day of their visitation. And you read it throughout the New Testament. This, there was this huge stream that infiltrated the whole church all the way up to Peter that said, the Gentiles have to become like us to be saved. Until Paul stood against it. Paul, the archetype exemplifying the call of Israel, laid down all of his identity, all of his passion to say, I am a Jew to the Jews. And most of us don't understand. Paul never stopped being a Jew in the fullness of what it means to be a Jew. The early believers were seen as a sect of Judaism. And they never saw themselves as anything other than Jewish. But Paul says, no, our our, our Gentile children don't have to become like us. They don't exist for us. We exist for them. They need to be all that they can be for God. And he laid down his whole life. He laid down his whole entity. And, and with this passionate vision, he died never seeing it. And so he was a father. He turned as a father, as a Jewish father, to the Gentile children. But then it reacted back. And you realize the church was under tremendous persecution. But the persecution didn't destroy them, it made them stronger. But they were like a son, growing a, a young black man growing up in the ghetto. 
The persecution didn't, and the difficulties didn't destroy them. It made them stronger. They became a fighter. But so many times you'll see, they sign a contract. They become a hip you know, rap artist, or they make it into sports big time. And many times, although the, the, the difficulties didn't destroy them, the prosperity does. And it's so sad if you, if you hear their stories. And the money just destroys them because they've never had it. And they have no father to mentor them. Folks, that's what happened to the early church. We went almost overnight from being intensely persecuted to then winning the greatest empire ever. And now we have a chance to disciple a nation. But what had happened? We had no example. They were lost. This is what I could feel the early Catholics were feeling. Why were they so bitter against Israel? Against the Jews? Because when they were back at that place, they looked around and they said, wow, and they... The old man had let us down. And they said, I'll never be like the old man, like Israel. What happened? They're doomed to follow it. Where if they had repented and said, no, God's grace would have come in. But see, then we think that Protestantism broke with the Catholic system. No, it didn't. But when, but when see, the iron and clay, clay is essentially the same entity as rock. What he's talking about, the kingdom of iron and clay, what we've been living in from the day of the fall of the church, when we allowed Romanism and, and Christianity to intertwine and become a, an empire, we've been living under that age from, this until, from that day to this. And the Roman Catholic Church, you can, you can identify it, but see the point is, it's not the Roman Catholic Church, it's us. It was the only church, it's your father's. And see, the Protestantism, the, when Martin Luther came up and he looked back and, he, and, and the church rejected him and he was so hurt and so painful, he left that and he says, I'll never be like the old man. And we think we broke with the Catholic system. Folks, we replicated it. The same thing happened. England was the first country built upon Protestantism. Folks, England and the empire spirit and Romanism are totally the same. Just look at colonialism. But we're in denial when America was born. We think that um, lunch is at 11.30. Okay. We think that when America was born, we broke with the English system. Folks, we have the ideals to break with the English system. But in reality, we did not break with the English system. We replicated it. And so we had to go down to Carmel and fall on our faces and say, Lord, you brought the, the, the gospel here in the Spanish language by the Catholic Church by divine design. And although when we read it, it makes us want to vomit, we want to just throw up at the iniquity that happened there, we can't distance ourselves from it. We have to own it. Because but by the grace of God. Why are so many times we move forward, we're doing the good thing, but we don't see the breakthrough with the indigenous people? Why? Because you're doing it in the same imperial mindset that, you, that, the, that caused the problem. So now you're doing a good thing, but you're doing it a wrong way. You're replicating it today. Unless you acknowledge history, you're doomed to repeat it. And that's what we did. And we've seen tremendous breakthroughs. Tremendous breakthroughs. And so last year in Argentina, um, Father Dimitri Sala, many of you have heard his name, Rick's going to bring him out here, tremendous, a Franciscan priest, the Lord connected with him. After we prayed in Carmel, the Lord just divinely connected us with him. 
And I began to realize, man, this guy is sharp. He's taught me so much. I mean, but I mean, he understands the gospel. His call is to preach the gospel to whoever will listen, but primarily he's preaching it to Catholics. And he says, but you know what you know? The official church teaching is the gospel. They've fallen from that. So, I mean, this is a reformer like Martin Luther, but he's determined because God has called him not to come outside, to be inside. And he may end up, uh, you know, may, may, uh, you know, I don't think it'll happen, but, you know, he's willing to lay down his life like all of us need to be and saying, I'm not going to react out. I'm going to stay in because that's where the Lord's called me to stay in. And he came and repented to the Argentine Protestants and knelt down and repented for the, what boils back to the treatment, the rejection of the church of Martin Luther and the orphan spirit it put upon the Protestants. Something so powerful broke. See, we could have never done that. And folks, right now we see a tremendous turn back to the Hebraic roots in Christianity. And I think it's wonderful. But listen to me. This is like a young man who's now grown up. He grew up from a dysfunctional family. His father was so harsh to him, beat him. He said, I'm never going to be like the old man. And now he has a family, and he realizes he feels this void in his life for identity and for family. So he turns back, and he wants to go back to his family, but the issues with his father are too harsh. So he goes back to his grandfather. Folks, that's what's happening with the Hebraic Roots movement. We're going back and trying to find identity with the Jews. But folks, until that man has the courage to be reconciled with his father and face those roots, he's never going to deal with the true root issue. Folks, and I'm speaking to you in the name of the Lord, until the church, until us, charismatic evangelicals, who are the, the, the children of Protestantism, until we have a passion for our Catholic roots, and a passion for the restoration of our Catholic roots that's as fervent, that's as deep, that's as passionate as our passion for the restoration of the Hebraic roots, the body of Christ will never be healed. And you say, wow, but there's so much baggage there. And you don't think there's baggage with the Jews? <laughs> Just study history. There's tons of baggage there. But love overcomes a multitude of sins, and love is overcoming the sins. We are living under the age of iron and clay. Clay, the Christianity mixed with the iron Romanism. And that has been ruling many kings, a divided kingdom. From the day of, of uh, when the Roman Empire fell, the, 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 the church, the Holy Roman Empire, the Christian church took over and provided stability. And it's been a mixture of Christianity with Roman Empire. Good and a mixture. And that baton has been passed. The same system replicated many kings, but one system. But I tell you, we're in the day that the rock is arising. The rock is this transformation movement that's moving towards the restoration of all things. That's going to hit this empire. That's going to destroy it to pieces. But the key is us. Intercession is the foundation. Repentance, brokenness. Going back to the roots. Being reconciled as a family. A right thing done a right way. Amen? Well, Father, I just release this word to you, Lord God, right now in the name of Jesus. And Father, I pray you just show us the cross, Lord God. 